And now, coming to you live from the Gresham Room, high above the Crude Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strand and Gary K. Wolf on the Crude Street Podcast! Welcome back. It's our second podcast in October of 2019, and we should probably move out of the Motel 6. Don't you think we've kind of grown up and we don't couldn't we afford i don't know what you have uh, i don't know that the coot street airbnb is an answer gary no i don't think an airbnb will work either let's just okay we'll stay with the with the motel six thing and, okay expecting some kind of gin bar or something i didn't even like gin um well there are good gins but we could talk about that with s- several writer guests i could think of who are more yeah, knowledgeable McDonald's. than both you and i are on i was noticing something that you had uh, been discussing on Facebook. And it occurred to me that it's the oldest problem in science fiction. And it's one which you have to deal with in a different way than you've dealt with before. And that is that what was previously an anthology of the year's best science fiction and fantasy now is going to be a new series of the year's best science fiction, which means that there is, to use a favorite metaphor of our president, a wall to be built. <laughs> Ah, yes, but unlike your president's wall, any wall that I have will be porous, Gary. No, <laughs> don't get me started on that. <laughs> because because the, the the thing about, even before we even contemplate trying to des- decide what science fiction is or isn't or anything else like that, the tr- the thing that is absolutely fundamental to the field anyway, I think, is that any genre boundary is inherently porous. You know, uh, it changes, it moves. The out, the if you like, if, if you picture science fiction as being something that has a core that goes out to a, an outer boundary, if that metaphor mm. works, then what's very true is that that outer boundary always has stuff going back and through through before it. What we're seeing as being genre changes, you know. Yeah, I think that's true, and I think that uh, the idea of trying to draw a, 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 a solid wall and essentially. Back when David Hartwell was doing his year's best fantasy and his year's best science fiction, the introductions to those annuals made it very clear, this is not fantasy and this one is not science fiction. He had very clear ideas in mind, but I think those were not ideas that had derived from uh, his reading. They were ideas that he brought with him to his reading. Uh, I think that that could be true. I mean, I put this question to Facebook and got uh-huh. some, some alternately really, really dismissive answers and some other, some semi-useful ones about, you know, is there a fundamental element that makes something science fiction? You know, is there a miracle ingredient mm. SF? And plainly there isn't, right? No, I don't think there it, is. Uh, it wasn't an attempt to find a definition. It was an attempt to find a litmus test of some kind. It was to be able to say, like, is this thing that? And... The further, I was going to say, the further you get from what is clearly, obviously, plainly science fiction, the harder it becomes to apply a litmus test. The thing mm-hmm. is, the more and more you think about um, the taxonomy of science fiction, the harder it is to find anything that's consistent about it. You know, the things that are supposed to be the big questions of science fiction generally are the big questions of life and literature anyway. So that doesn't apply. It's all fantasy. Almost none of it's possible, even the possible stuff. So then you move on to, well, it's all made up. 
So how are you actually going to define this science fiction thing other than it's going with the Damon Knight definition of it, it, it's what what I it's what I point to when I say science fiction, well, which is useful. Was, I was, I, it's it's not useful, and I think part of the problem is um, because this is something I spent time on years ago. I mean, when I did this book back in the eighties on critical terms, I dug up even in nineteen eighty six, I dug up something like fifty definitions of science fiction. Um, many of which were not were, were completely useless. The most popular one was some version of the Damon Knight. This is what I point to. Yeah, and then and then I uh, because I, I was really intrigued by by your Facebook responses, and what happens to me there is what happens to me every time on Facebook and every time on Twitter. By the time I think through what I want to say, it's like three weeks ago, sure, and sure. The, 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 the truck is miles down the road by now. But I did write an essay several years ago in which I, I my argument was the problem is not defining science fiction. It def- it's defining what you mean by definition. <laughs> oh, that's the ultimate quibble. Okay. Yes, it is. Uh, and, and, but but when I looked at those different things, this, this essay I wrote, which I don't even know what book it's in, all I know it was some book published by Paul Grave Macmillan. And at that time, I argued that there are three kinds of definitions that you find in science fiction. One, the classic one, is the functional definition, which is the Damon Knight. In other mm-hmm. words, this is, a, this is the definition that makes you decide whether or not something will be published in the science fiction magazine or anthology that you edit. Mm-hmm. It simply is working definition. Then there are a bunch of definitions, which would be... Um, Oh, a good example might be Brian Aldous's something about a search for a man in his place in the universe, which is absolutely useless, uh, which are purely rhetorical. The definitions aren't meant to do anything other than defend and legitimize the genre. They're simply a way of making a a, a grand philosophical statement about how important science fiction is. They're useless in deciding whether one text belongs or another because they're completely – they're Completely rhetorical and completely persuasive. The third category, so we had, we had the functional definitions, the rhetorical definitions. The third category, which is where people get screwed up, is the theoretical definitions, where mm-hmm. people try to come up with some list of cri- criteria, uh, cognitive estrangement or whatever you want to call it, yeah. that, that you can apply uniformly. And the problem that came up in this series of responses uh, to your Facebook post was people were continually confusing functional definitions with theoretical definitions. Sure. Theoretical definition, uh, in other words, you, it doesn't do you any good as an editor, I am imposing my views on you here, to look at a story and say, does this story feature cognitive estrangement? And I don't think <laughs> you have to tell that. And whose cognition is being estranged? And whose cognition is being estranged, absolutely. Uh, which, by the way, is a concept that uh, the, the Darko borrowed fairly heavily from Bertolt Brecht, who was talking about theater. But the point is, these kind of theoretical things, I mean, the idea that I always used when I did the series of lectures was, you know, if something is possible, uh, given the authority of science, it could be science fiction. Um, If it's not possible, given the authority of science, it's probably not science fiction. So, um, and then, then you have all these shadow areas where a whole group of writers decide they're going to use electromagnetic uh, theory of some sort to describe ghosts and, uh, and, and spirits and so forth. And you have more and more science fictional rationales 
for things that fantasy invented. Um, so by and large, the, the, theoretical, the theoretical definitions are useless for the average reader. And I would imagine that they are pretty much equally useless for an editor such as yourself. In this situation, yeah. And a lot of the times you look at something and you're going, well, where do you make your... Where do you make your distinction? I mean, the analog sci- uh, distinction with science fiction is that if you remove the science element from the story, it couldn't work. Now, I don't believe that that applies to all the analog stories at all, because I think most of them would work. No. There's just some aspect that goes away. But then you have to argue over what the fundamental al- element of the story is. And I look at stories like, I mean, I've just edited a story called Anthropocene Rag by Alex, Alex Irvine that's coming mm-hmm. out from Tor.com next year as a novella. And... It's about a nanotech, well, the, the aftermath of an, a nanotech ap- apocalypse, basically. And if you have a technology that can remake the world like magic, all you have is a word nanotech standing in for magic. There's mm-hmm. no real functional difference. Well, this is what I mean about science fiction finding ways of claiming uh, mm-hmm. What were originally fantasy ideas? I mean, uh, the time, if, if you go back before each, before the time machine in 1895, there were lots of time travel stories, and they were all fantasy stories. In Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court, you get hit over the head and you end up in uh, medieval England, uh, or you fall asleep for 200 years and you end up in the future, the, uh, or, or you get t- taken by a ghost to travel into the past or the future in A Christmas Carol. Yeah. And then when when Wells came along, this perfectly usable storytelling technique that fantasy had been using for years and years suddenly got claimed by science fiction. Science yeah. fi- another example, another example. Uh, go back to um, Murray Leinster's Sidewise in Time, and there are probably examples before that, but the alternate history, the alternate universe kind of thing, the different timelines. Science fiction and fantasy had been doing that as a completely unrationalizable, I like that word, <laughs> um, unrationalizable trope until sometime in the 50s when uh, the many worlds theory of uh, quantum mechanics actually got published, became a serious way of explaining quantum mechanics. Uh, and suddenly, all the, suddenly retroactively, all these alternate histories that we've been making up just because they were fun now might be science fiction. <laughs> and I think what you're saying about nanotech is the same thing. I, I, very much. And I, I guess what I, I, I would say about some of this as well is it's like, well, how do you find your way out of it? Because we are publishing science fiction. We are reading science fiction. I had a great cop-out, if you like, in the year's best science fiction and fantasy. And that cop-out was my book was made up of what I thought was science fiction, what I was, thought was fantasy, and uh-huh. some fuzzy stuff in between that I didn't have to worry right. about actually defining. So how do I deal with it now? Because that's really your question amongst this. Exactly. I don't think you're actually exactly. hoping to emerge from this discussion with any kind of functioning description of science fiction. Uh-huh. It's more what what's the rule that I'm going to apply. And the rule I'm, I want to apply, I think, and see if it sounds reasonable to you, is an extrapolation of the Damon Knight uh, appro- uh, approach. And the extrapolation is this. Science fiction for the purposes of this book in the world in which we live in is any fiction that has been published by someone as science fiction somewhere in the world. Now, what that opens up, and you would have experienced this with the science fiction and translation that you've been reading in the last year or two Mm -hmm. or three, 
is that around the world, not everybody's definition of science fiction is the same. Quite often it's fuzzier and more fantastical and whatever else. Mm -hmm. But if we give all definitions and views of science fiction equal equal legitimacy, what you get is a contemporary fuzzy set that is an international hopefully hopeful view of what science fiction kind of things are now. That's an interesting idea, and it raises the question. Because my first question, when you said something that has been published or has been recognized as science fiction by somebody, mm-hmm. yeah, um, is a different approach, for example, than um, the approach that Judith Merrill took in the first great series of, of, of science fiction annuals, where she wanted to include stories by Shirley Jackson. Well, of course, admittedly, she was including science fiction and fantasy, so it may not work. But the argument that that she was implicitly making was there's a lot of science fiction out there which is not published as science fiction, and you have to dig it up because science fiction readers might not otherwise encounter it. And to which I would say my response to that work is that I'm willing to extrapolate from what I see elsewhere being published as science fiction. So if something is published in venue A as science fiction, Mm -hmm. and I see something that is essentially similar in genre terms, though not in story or artistic terms, Mm. uh, in venue B, I will be happy to consider venue B's thing as science fiction. So I'm 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 not concerned whether you're published in the New Yorker or whether you're published in fantasy and science fiction. I'm not concerned uh-huh. if you're published in Tor.com or in the Delhi Times. What I'm concerned about is whether the, the stuff is stuff that's being recognized as being a science fiction. And it seems to me that if I don't want to put up useless boundaries that reflect mm-hmm. the real change that's happening in the last 10 years, right, then mm-hmm. I need to go for reader what's, what's, what's happening in reading and marketing rather than trying to come up with some false kind of distinction because what's happening is we are reconsidering what we think science fiction is right now we're Mm -hmm. not talking about it very much we're not talking about in those terms but but you know every time the core writing audience uh, writing cohort every time the reading group every time the point of view character cohort changes and expands and moves further from being solely and exclusively white guys, then you change the definition of science fiction along the way. I think that's true. And I think that that is an example of what I mean by a functional definition. That's something which essentially works in the world as a definition. I guess, I guess the question I have is um, the approach, and I'm thinking of historical anthologies because I'm really old and I remember all this stuff, um, that, uh, an editor I don't know, let's say uh, one of the most prolific editors of all time was Groff Conklin. And I know very little about him. And apparently not very many people know much about him. But my sense was he was putting together stories that he knew his readers would recognize as science fiction. He was not in most of it. He, he came up with theme anthologies. He came up with one of, the, one of the first thinking machines anthologies and one of the first invasion of Earth anthologies sure. that become a standard thing. But by and large, he didn't want to stretch his reader's view he wanted to please the readers um and whereas merrill for example i would argue to some extent terry carr wanted to expand the reader's view of what science fiction could be yeah wanted to show them look there's there's this guy using one of our favorite examples there's this guy lafferty whose stuff really kind of is a lot a lot of fun when you read it as science fiction but i'm not sure it started out that way 
I got to tell you the story that I, or the, the book, the book that I've been using in my mind as the test for this approach is Saad Hussain's book, The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday. Is it mm-hmm. science fiction or is it fantasy? And I have decided that I believe for a number of reasons that it's science fiction enough. I would uh-huh. include it and I would include uh, the reason I would say is here is a world governed by AI governed by nano that involves nanotech that, uh, has, you know, an, a dystopian, you know, post climate change, post Anthropocene kind mm-hmm. of background, all these kind of science fiction elements. And there is a wild card element in that story that is not currently explained in any other way than being fantastical. It's a resurrected God, basically. Exactly. And there may and be I, no I, other explanation than it is simply a resurrected God wielding magic. And I think the other example that you could point to as well would be Michael Swanwick's Iron Dragon's Daughter series, where, are, where there's a lot of well-thought-out science fiction, and there's a lot of stuff that is pure fantasy in it. Now, this is an example of what I mean about... Uh, about what I think you're doing right, which is to use a functional definition. In other words, a definition of uh, how will science fiction readers can you – is there enough science fiction in this to make it an interesting science fiction story? A theoretical definition would say, well, the minute you introduce a fantasy element, the story is fantasy. Um, the minute you have an unexplained supernatural dragon, no, which, which Swanwick doesn't have, um, or, 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 or a god being resurrected somewhere in the Himalayas, uh, that turns the entire thing into fantasy, and therefore, theoretically, you can't talk about it as science fiction. That's the flaw in the theoretical definitions. It is. I mean, I, I guess the other, the, the body of work that sits there sort of tormenting me in this space is Anne McCaffrey's Pern, mm-hmm. which, if you listen to Anne McCaffrey, was science fiction. If you listen to most of the readers, is fantasy. Mm-hmm. Now, for a long time, I would have argued that it was fantasy, and the science fiction thing was kind of a bit of hand wavium in the background. Now, I would argue under the current way I feel about the field, it was science fiction, because if you were to do a global search and replace through the entirety of the Pern saga uh-huh. and replace the word dragon with any other word that denotes telepathic um, space lizard, would it be science fiction? Well, and, and this is one of the problems I think that uh, that that is another question that comes up in terms, and that is that these definitions shift over time. In other words, yeah, McCaffrey uh, literally went to her grave insisting that she was a science fiction uh, yeah. writer. I mean, there was I, 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 at one point I had occasion to look up her. I was not there, but I looked up her guest of honor speech at the World Fantasy Convention, um, and she, the whole speech was I. Thank you very much, but I'm really a science fiction writer. Yeah. Um, and she, she went on to explain, well, the problem is, that's true. All the science fictional setup for the Pern stories are there in the first, the first story was published in analog, for heaven's sake. And then they became more and more, uh, dragon stories and the givens in the original science fiction story, what this planet is like, what its ecology is like, what genetic engineering is like. Uh, even the idea of telepathy was was still a science fiction idea back then. Uh, so by the time people started reading the fourth or fifth or seventh or eighth novel in the series, 
they may never have even noticed the science fiction foundations of it. And therefore, they have a perfectly valid way of reading a fantasy novel. I Look, I think you can – It's in some, in some ways it's easier, and this is I mean, a difference with, say, The Gurkha and The Lord of Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's easy to read Pern through a fantasy lens and harder to read it through a science fiction lens. But that doesn't mean that the science fiction lens isn't valid. Well, I think that's true. And I think that when you get into, even when you get into the later Dune novels, uh, you're getting into something that, and I've talked to many people who certainly read them as fantasy. I don't think you can actually read Dune. I don't think you can actually read the first three Dune novels as anything other than science fiction. But pretty soon, the planet is just an imaginary world and magical things seem to happen in it. And uh, the other problem, of course, is that there are a lot of things like psychic powers. This is true of both Dune yeah. and uh, and Pern. That is just nonsense in terms of any kind of hard science fiction. <laughs> okay. But science fiction simply decided to adapt them. I mean, uh, sure. You, but, got- okay. but let's turn our, our turn our discussion to more recent work, right, for a minute. Okay. Uh, we've both read, and I'm going to reread for a variety of reasons, the Ten Thousand Doors of January by Alex Harrow. Uh-huh. And there's all kinds of doors and all that kind of thing. Science fiction or fantasy? I read it completely as a fantasy. But a fantasy with, if you will pardon it, a doorway that allows you to use the many worlds theory of quantum mechanics. It's multiversal, right? It's multiversal. Uh, another example that fits into this um, is, is Karen Lord's first novel. Um, her more recent novel does something similar. Uh, but the first novel, Redemption in Indigo, clearly is a West African folktale. It's clearly a fantasy story. It's a fairy tale. But there is quantum mechanics inserted into it. Some of the gods do what they do because of the ability to man- manipulate the quantum universe. And this is somebody who uh, clearly grew up reading fantasy, reading fairy tales, um, but who also, I think, if I'm not mistaken, has a degree in physics. So, again, both things work. You can read it as... I think almost everybody read it as fantasy, but there's that little doorway in the middle of it that says, wait a minute, this has to do with quantum probability states, maybe. Let me ask you this one. Star Wars, science fiction or fantasy? I think when you're talking about film and TV, you're talking about a different set of definitions altogether. I I reject your statement. I reject it, and I reject it utterly. I... I will defend it. It seems to me that, okay. Uh, Make your the, case. The machinery, the machinery that surrounds, that, that, that Star Wars is made up of is almost entirely the machinery of science fiction. There are planets, there are death rays, there are spaceships, there are oppressive overlords and galactic empires and rebels and so forth. So all this stuff you find in science fiction continually for 50 years. There's other stuff in it like the Force, but the Force has always kind of been there in science fiction as well. So it's a science fiction universe that's used to retell a kind of classic fantasy fable. But it's um, got like magical midichlorian love things. Well, yeah, exactly. It's 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 magic. Everything that happens really, that, that has any real effect in what happens in the ends of those stories is essentially magical. But if, all... If, the, your, all if, your, if your test for Star Wars was... The test you apply to science fiction, which is, could it happen in the real, in the universe we live in? Surely the answer is no. 
I don't know that I would necessarily agree with that. You, you this happened in, a long time ago. <laughs> in a galaxy far, far away. Yeah, I appreciate far away. that. Yeah, exactly. still, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the, 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 there are there are things in it. The, the, the stuff that is incredible in it is no more incredible than it was in the Skylark of Space 80 years ago. And that was accepted as science fiction because we were willing to accept it as science fiction. Well, it's pulp. On- it's, it, it, when you're when you when you're in the arena of pulp, I'm going to get in a lot of trouble for this. I can see right now. If you're in the arena of pulp, or you're in the arena of the Marvel universe, the distinctions between science fiction and fantasy become really, really kind of arbitrary. The superhero things are almost exclusively fantasy. Occasionally, with a, a, a vague science fictiony kind of statement on top of them to make you feel okay about it, right? Well, Asgard's another planet, maybe. So that maybe sort of makes it kind of science fictional. Maybe it's Thor like, is an It's alien. like Superman, Superman flies because he pushes off the ground really hard, right? Well, okay. And then let's, I suppose let's, he changes direction by farting or something. Let's be fair. that In the original Superman comic book, all he did was jump really far. But how did he turn in the air? I don't think they worked that part out. <laughs> <laughs> He'd need his own propulsion system. Yes, he, he would. Um, I don't, I, and there's no evidence but, of that. But... But, anyway. but this, okay, yeah. if you look at what happened, Superman's a good example. Superman, by most accounts, uh, one or the other, Siegel or Schuster or both of them, had read Philip Wiley's Gladiator, which was simply about a, a, a Superman, somebody with not the power to fly and so forth and so on. And they ran with this sort of homo superior idea and gave him powers that were just purely fantasy powers. So what was originally a science fiction conceit by layering it with one fantasy element after another. He's got x-ray vision. He can fly. He can, uh, in at least the movie, he can fly around the world backwards and, 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 and turn, turn time back. It became uh, a, a simple-minded science fiction premise, a stronger person than most, and it was layered with so much fantasy that it's hard to find the science fiction at the base anymore. But he came from a destroyed planet. Yes, he did. And he came from a destroyed planet that was conceived by people who had no idea how planets worked or how gravity worked or any, any of the ideas that, that, that were behind it. But it was supposedly a science fiction idea. I think we need to make a distinction between dumb science fiction and fantasy. Okay, fair enough. Let me circle around a little and go back to The Gurkha and the Lord of Tuesday, which you've read. Mm-hmm. Science fiction or fantasy? I enjoyed it tremendously, and the way I read it was it begins as fantasy. I think the narrative is very cleverly constructed to make us ask this question. It begins clearly that um, the Lord of Tuesday, this supernatural figure, is resurrected somewhere high in the Himalayas. Um, He comes down, he meets the Gurkha who introduces him to a world which is clearly a science fictional world. It's it's a Blade Runner world. It's a cyberpunk world. It happens to be uh, not you know, American urbanization, but it's everything you described. You know, it's, it's full of nanotech, it's full of um, technological advances. Everything in that world, except the Lord of Tuesday, is science fiction. And as soon as he entered that world, I was willing to say, okay, this is a science fiction world, but given the terms of science fiction that Hussein laid out for himself, he's not going to introduce any other magic into that world. My question is, within the rules of science fiction, is it where almost everything, in fact, where everything else in the story has a science fictional explanation, 
is it a situation where we, ju- where we just don't have the science fictional explanation for the fantastical elements yet? I don't like that idea. That's that's the Arthur Clarke idea, which really needs to be beaten into the ground with caution. <laughs> well, let me so, let me cite another recent book for you, right? And I don't think you've okay. read this one. So, uh, but Tamsin Muir's book, Gideon the Ninth, which has been mm. sweeping the field this year and and being yes, you know, and it's an enormous lot, lot of fun, and I'm happy to recommend, right? Science fiction or fantasy. It's gothic. Well, that doesn't have any real uh, no. impact on whether it's science fiction or fantasy. It has necromancers. I guess it depends how they do their necromancy, right? I suppose so. It has people finding a seemingly inexhaustible source of bone stuff to use, like human bone stuff, to use as weapons. That seems a bit odd. But but it, there's all the stuff of space opera in it, right? There's spaceships uh-huh. and space fleets and all that kind of stuff. So is that enough to make it science fiction? It's science fiction e. It's science fiction e. But okay, there's 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 I, I think there's a dialogue going on here between science fiction and fantasy, and I think it's fairly deliberate. Science fiction can absorb the machinery of fantasy and has done so, as we've mentioned many times. Everything from telepathy to time travel is essentially a fantasy idea. That science fiction is. A, why can't fantasy adopt? The material of science fiction. If you have a fantasy novel and you want to have spaceships in it, that's perfectly fine. One good example of uh, th- that dialogue is, again, I, I keep going back to older texts, but if you go back to um, what is called C.S. Lewis's science fiction trilogy out of the Silent Planet and Paralandra and that hideous strength, they're pure fantasies, but they have spaceships in them. They have Mars as one of the settings. Uh, Venus is another setting. He uses some of the machinery of science fiction to to ground his fantasy, I guess. But I don't think any serious modern science fiction reader reads those C.S. Lewis novels as any more science fiction sure. than the Narnia stories are. What about space opera? Isn't space opera just uh, fantasy in science fiction clothing? No, I don't think so. I think maybe it was to some extent. But here's the other problem with definitions. Now that we're into do we, does it sound like we're just mansplaining everything here? Should we just? Well, no, no, stop? I don't think we're mansplaining. I think we're old fartsplaining. Okay. And okay, what I was fart. going to say, what I was going to say actually was as, as a side, we probably should have started. This uh-huh. whole subject really is irrelevant to readers and really is almost exclusively irrelevant to writers, I think. It's of interest to people who talk about the field in a particular way and nobody much else. Because it doesn't, I, it's true. I don't think that fiction should be written or read to meet the barriers of, oh, or the grounds of this. I absolutely this. agree with that. From the reader's point of view, though, I do think that the space opera is an interesting question because um, somebody reads um, uh, Alistair Reynolds, for example, uh, is, 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 might be a good example, uh, or Peter Hamilton, for that matter, or anybody that has followed on what, what you and Gardner actually termed the new space opera. Uh, what, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, is it now? Um, no, our, our anthology was 2007. Oh, that recently. Okay, 12 yeah, years ago. 12 years ah, ago. Okay. And really, the new space opera go, probably goes back, to, oh, God, I don't know, 12 years before that. So, it's, I mean, it all dates back to Interzone and the radical hard science fiction. Exactly, and this is why I think that these terms can be important to readers because young readers especially will read some uh, – uh, 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 they'll read Paul McCauley or they'll read Al Reynolds or they'll read uh, uh, Yoon Ha Lee 
and this looks like space opera, and so I sort of think I like space opera, so maybe I'll pick up the Skylark of Space, and they're going to be disappointed. They're not going to like what they see. That's and that's true, because that's the term space opera itself, like science fiction, like all these films we're talking about, has shifted over time. It has. Space opera began as a term of contempt. It was, I don't know why I know this, but it was Wilson Tucker in 1941 who uh, <clears throat> used it as a contemptuous term of the hackneyed, out-of-date uh, Western in space, and he yeah. used horse opera, which in turn was based on soap opera. And then by the 60s and 70s, uh, Brian Aldiss did an anthology called, two or three anthologies maybe called Space Opera. It became a nostalgia kind of thing. It became a, a time of science fiction's innocence. It's wonderful. Let's go back to the Buck Rogers stuff. Gardner Dozois did an anthology called The Good Old Stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of, so, so, so Space Opera moved from a term of contempt to a term of nostalgia to kind of a term of defiant revolution with these uh, radical became, hard science uh, fiction writers. It became a thing of redefinition, certainly. Yeah. And so, so somebody then, reading Space mm-hmm. Opera Today, Space Opera Today does not mean what it meant 20 years ago, or especially not what it meant 80 years ago. Well, at the risk of putting my hand in the blender here, what do you think it means now? I'm trying to figure that out, and I think one of the things that makes it interesting to figure that out is that every writer who undertakes it kind of redefines it in various different ways now. There's an argument going back 15 years that, uh, or, or more that, that M. John Harrison was defining an entirely new kind of space opera, and I think he was. Uh, but I think that's a kind of uh, post-new wave, pre-new space opera space opera, if you will. Um, and it's a particular kind of space opera that holds up very well, but it's not like the kind of Peter Hamilton thing, which was an epic scale space opera. I mention this because I've got the new Peter Hamilton novel, which I've not even looked at yet, um, that still has a lot of the virtues and appeal of the older forms of space opera. I don't think he's trying to do radical literary no, not experiments think he is. space opera. He's trying to celebrate it. Sure. I guess what I'd say is that to me, I mean, Space opera is a space adventure. Right. I don't know that, that that you need to go a whole lot further these days to define space opera, do you? Do you have it's to get into the whole, it has to be, uh, have a, a sense of drama, you know, like melodrama about it, you know, because mm-hmm. I, I was asking myself, I mean, I, for a variety of reasons, my head has been in a definitional kind of space. Mm. I've been thinking about how, what I consider to be science fiction, and that then always leads me, because of the way I think, into then, well, how do I think about other terms? What do I think about hard science fiction, mm-hmm. a, ta- a, ta- a term that I think is less and less and less and less useful? Uh, what do I think space opera is? How would I define space opera? What would I say space opera is? I'm going, well, surely the first definition of, or the first criteria for space opera is somewhere all of the story must be set in space. Not on a planet. So let's just be clear. You're making a distinction between what used to be called the space opera and what used to be called the planetary adventure. Yes, I th- well, if not that, okay. If space isn't the, the 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 fundamental definitional criteria that some or all of the story is set in space, then what is? Well, I guess the question is. I mean, you, no, you no, can no, make the, the argument. What could you put in? Name me a space opera that's not doesn't have some of it set in space. I think, hmm, 
I could, I could, I could play games here, I suppose. I could say that there are space operas in which the narrative itself takes place largely in one setting, but a good example, okay, since we, we were talking about this just last week, um, Clifford Simak's Way Station it takes place in rural Minnesota, uh, but the background of it is this massive space opera that's going on off stage that the, 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 the central character only learns about his role in. It's not a space opera, Gary. Not a kid's space opera. It has but to be in the story opera. you're reading. It can't be the okay, backdrop. Okay, be a, but okay, but that's that, that that may be helpful. But isn't that a lot like saying, okay, well, a western is defined by its being set in the West. If it's not in the West, it's not a western. Yes, yes, that's exactly what it is. It's like so saying you're it's daytime it, and not nighttime. Okay, you're defining a genre by setting, which is a way of doing it. Well, but, but I mean, for this one though, for this one, space. Opera. It's not like planet opera or land opera or sea opera. It's like a space opera. Well, surely. Okay. We're, we're, we're putting aside the opera part, which is over. Sure, yeah, and I'm, yeah, yes, yes. But let, let, let's, let's take let's, an example. Let's, okay. Let's replace the word opera okay. with adventure and move forward, right? I was thinking, I was thinking of, um, because I'm reading a series of fantasy novels by this author now, but I was, I was thinking of, um, Elliot de Boudard's Zuya universe. And I was thinking of a story like The Teen Master and the Defective, Detective. Team Master and the Defective is something that, Elliot, if you think about this, uh, you might want to take under uh, consideration. But by and large, it's a space opera in terms of setting. Would you agree that the Team Master and the Detective is pretty much set in space? I mean, it's a spaceship yes. is one of the main characters in it. I think it has a but, space opera setting, but I don't think a space opera setting automatically makes a story space opera. This is exactly the point I'm getting at. The plot of the story is essentially a mystery. It, yeah. And and one of the things this has been one of the things that has been a problem in defining genres since people started trying to define genres. They're defining every genre by different terms, by different terminology. So back when we talked about the westerns as a popular genre, it was a genre defined by nothing but setting. You talked about mysteries, as the title implies, it's a genre defined by nothing but plot. If you talk about romance, it's a genre defined by nothing but well, romance. Um, science fiction doesn't fit into any of those categories, and yet it fits into all of them. That's because the, probably the most useful thing anyone said about this is it's not a genre at all. It's a lens or a way of looking at something. Or a mode of writing. In other words, yeah. this is something that, yeah, this is, this is not original to you or, or, not, or me at no, all. Not remotely, no. But, but no, yeah, you can write a science fiction western, and people did that. There's a famous story of Chester Geyer, I think his name was not selling a Western story to a Western magazine, so just replacing the horses with spaceships and selling it to a science fiction pulp. Um, there are clearly science fiction romances. There are science fiction mysteries. Some of them are very good. Um, so in the case of, uh, to go back to the, 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 the L.A. de Boudard example I mentioned, it's a mystery which has the setting of a space opera. And so then, for that matter... So then what, what makes it then... A space. What, what makes a story space opera then? What, what is that litmus test? Where do you go from being like? If we say that the team exactly. is mm -hmm. is, and it feels to me it's where, if you like, the adventure element comes to the fore in the space story. Can it do both? Of course it can, uh, and in some cases it does, but not in all. No, I, I, there there are. Uh, there are space operas that simply are problem stories. The classic uh, 
astounding era problem story uh, is something goes wrong. I, I, I hate to bring up the cold equations again, but some, something, blow-ups happen by Heinlein. Uh, a problem that exists in space that derives from being in space uh, maybe a technological problem-solving story, but it's a story which is 100% space opera in the sense that the plot depends on being in space, depends on the technology of being in space, the resolution has to do with being in space. Um, the problem is if you limit space opera to that set of stories, you're down to a few hundred stories, mostly by Arthur Clarke and a few by Robert Heinlein. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't really mean anything. I mean, uh, it doesn't op- mean anything. Uh, so, so, so and, and I suppose the sort of, I guess, you, you know, if you want to, you could argue that in a sense, you use a different metaphor for this, that if space opera is a mighty river, river, some of the spray is going to be where the Elliot de Bedard, uh, story lives. I think Elliot de Bedard knew exactly what she was doing with, of she did. with the space opera setting for that. And this is my point. That uh, we, we, we come back to a point which, again, we've made more than once on the podcast. Space opera is a tool. It's a resource that a science fiction writer can use to write a, essentially a mystery story or to write a character-based story. Um, there are Ken Liu stories that are space operas. Uh, Mono, uh, Mono no, no Awari, I Mo, think. Mono no Awari, yeah. yeah. As, as, as a space opera setting. Uh, and, and yet it's, it's really kind of heartbreaking character study. So space opera is about as useful as as the term western is in defining something that could be a uh i don't know uh it, it, it could be a moral fable like walter van tilburg clark's the oxbow incident it could be a luke short shoot 'em up western like all the western movies or it could be something by cormac mccarthy in other words the setting is simply an opportunity to write a lot of different stories so space opera to me is is a resource available to science fiction writers, but I think it would be reductive to take, and I don't want to, I should think of another example besides Aliette. Um, I think it would be reductive to take a story which happens to be set in space. Paul McCauley's um, uh, series um, of, of the novels. The stories. In, uh, yes, exactly. Um, a lot of, a fair amount of that is set in space, but to, to look at it only through the lens of space opera is to reduce what he's really trying to do there. Sure, sure. Um, let me ask you, uh, approach all of this from a different angle for a second. Let's say mm-hmm. you were tasked with a job that I've tasked myself with, which is to compile mm-hmm. a year's best science fiction, and you could throw anything into that pot that you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. What wouldn't you put in? What wouldn't I put in? That's a very hard question. It's... it's uh, because I thought you were going to say what 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 things would you want to put in? Um, I would want. Okay, let, let me let me let me approach this backwards by thinking what I would want to include. I would want to include things that would please the readers as yeah, this is what science fiction does really well. I'd want to include some things where the readers would think I didn't know science fiction could do that. Because when I as a reader come across a story where I think I didn't know you could do that in science fiction, I'm really pleased with it. Um, the things I would exclude are things in which, um, hmm, in which there is no appeal to a scientific worldview at all. Okay. Things that um, either are based in pseudoscience, are based in ideas that um, 
don't seem to resonate with contemporary science fiction at all. I, I wonder, and this, this is a purely theoretical question because we get very few stories like this now. But I wonder if somebody today writing stories that had precogs, like Philip K. Dick's precogs in them, would get away with defending that as science fiction. Uh, Foretelling the future through some thing that goes on in your brain is something that that Dick, as a writer, wanted to do because his plot wanted him to do it. Um, And it worked very well for him. And in the 60s, that worked very well as science fiction. I don't know if precognitive skills or telepathy would work that way today. And I don't know now that I think about it, if I've read many stories recently that deal with sort of uh, what used to be called psychic skills or paranormal. They are very out of favor these days. I rarely have ever seen anything like that. That's what I was thinking. So I was thinking something that, that may had something that pretended that paranormal phenomenon uh, could be described as science fiction, I would be very leery of. Fair enough. Hmm. You know, I don't know whether we have parsed this in any useful way at all since we started, other than to kind of go, I think you need to, you, you need to see your definitions and, uh, as, as moving target. Or moving definitions. Absolutely. As, 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 as you, you need to see the target as moving. You need to see it all, you know, through through the, mo- the most generous filter. Because the thing that frustrates me about using definitions is it hurts people. It does. People feel excluded when you use a definition a particular way. And it used to puzzle me, and sometimes it still does. You know, why why would, does someone feel emotionally? Um, when you tell them that this work is hard science fiction, that is not, and that's because mm. there there are other values, societal values within the science fiction field that are applied to those terms. They're seen as being, you know, what's like when when Gardner would talk about core science fiction. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, core implies essential. It uh, quite you know it seems to suggest some kind of more legitimate version of science fiction almost, which I don't think was his intention. What he meant. But nonetheless, that's what it implies. There's that feeling that hard science fiction is the purest, bestest kind of science fiction there is. And so then if, well, if you say this story isn't hard science fiction, then you're saying, well, it's less that, it's less science fiction than the hard science fiction story. And then you get into, well, how do you define, how, how do you make a decision? You know, if you mm-hmm. read a book, right, like Lois McMaster Bujold's Cryoburn, right? Yeah. Which is predominantly about reproduction and cryogenics and reproductive technology is that hard science fiction it didn't feel like hard science fiction to me but i know people who felt very strongly that it should be considered that way and that it was frankly sexist to exclude it it's an argument which i've heard and there's some validity i think to it if you define hard science Hmm. fiction as physics and chemistry and astronomy and exclude biology this is a point that's been made many times that Hmm. Uh, back in the 50s, that a lot of the most provocative biological science, not in the 50s, 50s up until the present, a lot of the most provocative biology-based science fiction has been science fiction by women. That um, doesn't mean that women uh, don't write hard physics science fiction, but the fact is that if you say some science is more science than other science, it's essentially what you're saying. I yeah. mean, that, that definition of hard science fiction implies a definition of science that starts probably with physics, and moves outward from there. And by the time you've gotten from physics all the way out to biology or ecology, for that matter, 
uh, you've moved away from the center. I think that's a really dangerous way to look at it. And the other thing we haven't talked about, which is probably too late to even get into, is the notion that science fiction is a process of thinking about the premises of your story rather than the nature of those premises. Hello? You can't hear me? No, you dropped out just for that second. It glitched. Oh, oh that's odd because I didn't do anything here. <laughs> I was going to, I was going to say that this might be another conversation for another time. But Ted Chang's argument is that if he sets a story, his first story, Tower of Babylon, uh, in Babylonian mythology, and somebody, and it may have been David Hartwell, who described that story as Babylonian hard science fiction. In other words, once you've got the cosmology set, if you follow the rigid rules of that cosmology, if you follow the logic of the premises of the story. You're writing hard science fiction because you're being as disciplined as writers are who use our notion of science as the basis. But then, if that's true, couldn't you do it using just a contemporary story that's about building something? Um, uh, it's possible, I suppose. No, the, the contemporary I mean, what, story what's, about the, what's, what's the difference? Like. We live in the world we live in. We have the set of uh, uh, you know, r- right. rules from physics that we're aware of. And you're going to have to go and build a bridge in 2019. And you're going to do it from the viewpoint of the engineer building it. Hard science fiction story or not hard science fiction story? There's nothing speculative in that. And there's nothing unusual in it. But uh, what, but, but that's, that's a story which realistic fiction begins with the assumption that all the premises of science fiction are valid. In other words, that we live in a scientifically deterministic universe. Um, and if, 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 there's, if there's a little bit of wiggle room here and there for uh, spiritual or, uh, or, or psychic phenomenon, uh, that's okay because you're just using it. But by and large, what you're talking about there is, is, is science fiction that doesn't have any speculative element at all. What Ted's talking about is he's taking Babylonian mythology sure, yeah, or that, yeah. fundamentalist mythology or uh, Kabbalistic mythology and simply following the rules sure. as rigorously as he can. And I totally appreciate that. That's like saying the Iron Dragon's Daughter is hard science fiction. Yeah, exactly. It follows the rules. It follows the rules it lays out for itself. What you can't do and what uh, I think Swanwick is very careful about avoiding is you can't simply uh, decide halfway through your narrative that your science fiction plot has got itself into a corner. So now I'm going to bring in a supernatural dragon. What about sort of science fiction adjacent fiction? And by that, in this very this case, I mean something like, what about if you were to picture a real-world story that dealt with stuff that science fiction is also interested in like space travel so you posit a private entrepreneur putting together his own space company and doing a space shot to the moon which in mm-hmm. 19 which in 1945 was totally science fiction right and would have been right. published in analog or astounding in a heartbeat what about now well, we've had novels since then. We've had uh, James Michener wrote a novel called Space, which was essentially a kind of James Michener novel that dealt with space travel. It was, by technical definition, science fiction. I think most science fiction readers would have thought, this is really kind of dull because we've seen this a hundred times before. 
but he was trying to give it that kind of treatment. So, so, so there is that sort of thing. There's a, a kind of Tom Clancy high tech where you're not really sure how these weapons on this nuclear sub work. Are they really out there already or not? Um, there's a, there's a, there's a whole kind of militaristic, um, adventure fiction, which I think constantly pushes yeah. the edge of science fiction. And I think the readers don't know what's real and what's not. And I don't think they really care. Uh, the, the super weapons that you see in, uh, science fiction movies, they look really cool. Uh, they operate according to principles that we think they should be able to operate according to. But do they exist? We don't know. So it's not treated as science fiction. It's treated as kind of a feature of a certain kind of adventure fiction. Fair enough. Well, since we're not going to get to the end of this discussion, let's draw a line onto this discussion and quickly in the last seven or eight minutes of our podcast okay. as a service to our listeners who have slogged through probably exactly the kind of thing that we would have slogged through many times before. Uh-huh. Have you read anything in the last couple of weeks that you would recommend to read uh, to our listeners go out and find and read? One of the interesting things I've read, and it's interesting because of what it says about science fiction moving beyond the boundaries of science fiction, is a, um, I don't know whether it's a short novel or a novel by River Solomon called The Deep. Mm-hmm. And The Deep is a uh, novel, it's, ba- it's, it's, it's fantasy, there's, there's no way of reading this as science fiction, but there's also a kind of secret history element to it. The conceit is that... Um, Slave women, pregnant slave women, were thrown overboard during uh, the slave era because simply they, they, they were of no value anymore, I guess. And, and the, the children born of these drowning women learned to live underwater and created this underwater society. It's a kind of somewhere between Atlantis and, and Wakandia. The novel takes place in, 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 a, in a much later time period, and this society exists. But what's interesting about it, apart from the idea itself, which is a very disturbing and provocative idea, is that it wasn't River Solomon's idea. No. Um, it was an idea that uh, came from a rap group uh, who in turn borrowed it from another uh, electronica music group. Um, and so it's this is something that begins as... Uh, Didn't it come a from, a stor- from a pe- uh, song uh, per- written and performed by Clipping, who performed Clipping, at yes. the 2017 Worldcon in Helsinki? In fact, was nominated for a uh, Hugo, Hugo Award. There. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with, with the, 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 I believe David Diggs was the uh, performer on that. Um, the but the I, the original conceit came from a. They took the conceit from a group whose name I can't pronounce. Um, and I could probably look it up really quickly because we should certainly give them credit. Uh, but this is an idea of and, – and that original thing, I've looked at the originals and, um, in fact, tried to figure out how River Solomon came up with the narrative she did, which is in, 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 a considerable expansion of, um, of, of, of what had been there before. Uh, I'm, I'm just going to look this up really quickly at the end because I hate to not give people. Why don't you just pop it into the show notes? I will do that, but I already have it here. Uh, that the group that uh, originally came up with the idea, this utopia, and it was called, I presume, Drexian, D-R-E-X-C-I-Y-A-N. I will put that in the notes. Um, and they came up with an idea which Clipping then turned into a Hugo-nominated song, which is a very 
evocative but very uh, spare song. It's a song where you have to fill in most of the uh, ideas by yourself. Yeah. And then River Solomon, who had already written a very uh, provocative novel on science fiction themes, on Unkindness of Ghosts, turned it into a, a really uh, short epic fantasy, if there's such a thing. Yeah. Uh, there's certainly an epic idea behind it. And it's, it's one of the most interesting interactions I've seen in science fiction lately. Um, and, and not in science fiction, because this is clearly in fantasy. Okay. That's fascinating. Um, and apart from that, I have... Uh, just read this beginning of Joe Abercrombie's next trilogy, A Little Hatred, which I is really as I like that book. I really, really liked it. It, 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 it. I got into it a lot more than I thought I would, and now now I'm stuck reading another trilogy. Thank you, Joe. It is. And, you know, it, th- this is the um, first law world moving through the Industrial Revolution, which is kind of interesting. It's been done before in fantasy, but it's it's interesting to see it mm-hmm. done again and from his perspective. It has that kind of slightly gritty, slightly dark uh, side to it. And, you know, quite compelling. And if you're interested out there in the world, go to the Subterranean Press website and see the rather fabulous piece of artwork that's been done for their edition of the book. But the both the Golans and the, um, pardon me, the US editions of A Little Hatred look fabulous. They're great looking books. Yeah, and it's a, it's a great title too because it implies... Like all of his titles, it really describes the world quite well. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the one the book I've just started reading just yesterday is a book that ha- will already have sold so many copies that my recommendation is meaningless. But I'm about halfway through reading Lee Bardugo's new novel, Ninth House. And mm-hmm. I've never read anything by Lee Bardugo before, but her work has been recommended to me, and it is a quite compelling fantasy at this point, I'd say I've not come across any novel or new elements. It's a contemporary set fantasy. It's gritty. It's set in and around, in and around Yale. So uh, it, it, it's a little bit like there's a book that came out a few years back called The Rook by Daniel Malloy, I think it was, which has been made into a TV know. show. And it's a bit like that set around Yale from the perspective of a woman who has been seeing ghosts her whole life when nobody believed it. And it's really very compelling. And, I mean, I'm looking forward to sort of seeing where the story gets. It's actually getting in the way of me doing uh, my work at the moment, which probably says a lot for it but isn't very helpful. That's a good sign, though. Um, well, apart from the fact that I need to do that work, Gary. Well, you have to do that work, and you should get to it right now. And why are we wasting time <laughs> podcasting when, when you have clearly deadlines to meet? Deadlines to meet, people to pay, stories to As, edit, well, I have to stories to find. I just sent out a proposal for a new book, so, you know. Okay, well, it's your it's your ambition. You're doing this to yourself. You realize that, don't you? There was a moment this morning when I sat there you know, <laughs> in, in another room, away from all of my d- devices, just reading a paper book, where I sat there going, huh, what would life be like if I just let it all go? You know, like if I just kind of didn't do all that other stuff. Yeah. But, One day uh, you'll be able to retire like I did, and then you won't ever have to do anything again. <laughs> Ex- except I have a deadline in 10 days, and I have three books to read before I get to it, so it well, doesn't work that way. Uh, yes, you've got a column to do, and you need to start thinking about your bookings for New Zealand and Wellington. I was talking to someone from the United <laughs> Kingdom just this week who was looking uh-huh. for advice on air, uh, flight bookings and everything else, and so should be thinking about that, young man. I'm thinking about it. I've discovered that there are apparently some direct flights to Wellington. 
which I had not thought previously. Because, from Chicago? Well, from Chicago to God knows where, Honolulu to Wellington, I think. Fair enough. I would have thought if you fly Air New Zealand, you should be able to get there. But anyway. There is, a, there, there is no for, for anybody listening in the Chicago area and wants to spend like days and days on a plane, there is a direct flight, I believe, once or twice a week from Chicago to Auckland. Yes. Hey, look, John Scalzi just returned to the United States, having been in Canberra in Australia to attend a conference on science fiction and military in the future uh-huh. that, uh, that was held at the Australian Defence College and seems to have travelled about 400 hours each way. Though if, if you've got nothing else to do with your time, there's a rather entertaining video on his blog, whatever.scalzi.com, uh, where he and his daughter eat Australian candy. Mm-hmm. Oh, and on that note... On that note, we'll talk about Australian candy the next time around. Yes. Until then, this has been the Cood Street Podcast. It has indeed.